0: This meeting is being recorded.
1: As if you couldn't believe it the first time, the second time should tell you. You are lo- watching or listening to another edition of Forward Maryland. Today is Sunday, March 20th, 2022. I'm Bill Woodcock. And I'm Steve Hunt. Happy Sunday, everybody. And, and, and Steve, I'm trying to change my perspective. I'm using an alternative camera, camera angle today. Uh, so that it doesn't always look like I'm looking down or that I'm looking around. I'm told that a lot of times it looks like I'm looking around. How how do I look to you today, Steve?
2: Looking good, brother. Looking good. And uh, not not necessarily tan, rested, and ready, but I'm sure ready to rock and roll with our guest today. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. Truthfully, a face
1: made for radio. Thank you for that compliment, <laughs>
2: sir.
1: So today... We go back to kind of the the roots of of Forward Maryland, and uh, we we, uh, we bring back today a old friend of the podcast. In fact, she came to us a couple of years ago. Jason and I had mm-hmm. interviewed her when she was a candidate for the Baltimore City Council, and I've known Natasha Gwines a little bit longer than that, and uh, she's also uh, in her... Uh, real life or non-political life, or maybe it all kind of merges, we're gonna talk about that. She is the founder and president of Her Resiliency Center, which is a nonprofit organization she, she formed uh, to aid young women uh, who are caught up in the throes of addiction, uh, substance abuse, homelessness, and also who are victims of sexual exploitation. So Natasha, uh, it is with uh, pleasure that we welcome you back to the show today. Good afternoon.
0: Thanks. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, so, have life it,
1: it is, it is our pleasure. Uh, and as I said, you know, back in the the beginnings of Forward Maryland, we we wanted to talk not just about politics, but about people who are in this area who. Uh, who are in this region, I should say, who are making a difference, and you are certainly doing that. And as uh, you and I both know, the uh, face of recovery has no one face. It has a multitude of faces. Uh, Tell us, as we are in, you know, a third of the way almost into 2022, and coming out of the let's hope the backside of the covid pandemic uh tell us what you see as the as maybe the two or three major issues in the recovery community
0: well um you know i i just have to say you we were talking about like my non-political or my real life and bill i think you've heard this that i don't have a personal life or a professional life i have a life And it's because at Her Resiliency Center, we're really building a community of women supporting women. And of course, it takes some men to be a part of our community as well, to help strengthen um, the advocacy for women and the needs of women. Um, Prior to the pandemic, though, to answer your question, prior to the pandemic, if you didn't have anything then, you don't have anything now. And I think that is a lot of uh, f- like from an economic perspective, and also the the desperations that, that went along with not having anything before than even being in more desperate positions throughout the last two years. Um, we know that there've been um, a number more of overdoses as people haven't had other options for mental health uh, recovery or access to therapeutic services. At HER, we've, what we saw the most emerging in late 2021 and depth still now is the lack of connection that we, the um, women we serve have to natural supports that they would have had prior to the pandemic and then adding on any kind of therapeutic supports.
1: So so the, 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 the question that I asked you, and I, I hate to say this, but for the, the first question, I asked you a question that I was suspecting that that would be the answer of because I know that here in Central Maryland, uh, which uh, sometimes we call the land of milk and honey, uh, we don't really think about people who are in recovery. And we think that, you know, that folks in recovery are someone else's problem. But I mean, I happen to be familiar with you with your work, and you are literally on call. 24-7 Twenty-four-seven uh, to help uh, women who are going through uh, some sort of a crisis situation in, in their lives, uh, be it uh, uh, addiction-based, substance-based, or or also uh, somebody who's been victimized by somebody who's taking advantage of them intimately. Um, you know what 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 are the you know what are the strongest challenges that you, I mean, that you find in terms of trying to find support for people who don't have natural advocates, you know, you know, you and I had a conversation one time and I, you know, uh, you know, we talked about the fact that the recovery community does not have a lobby uh, people in recovery are not thinking of going to Annapolis or DC and lobbying. You know, what do you see as, as the things are the think that people in the community most desperately need?
0: Sure. Well, if you would, and um, see so if you guys wouldn't mind me just take stepping back for a moment and sharing a little bit of what we do at her and who we see come through sure. in a little bit of a different lens. So at Her Resiliency Center, we support young women. 18 to 25, overcoming various forms of hardship. So we only ask that they identify as female and be in that age range. Um, And we started in Washington, D.C. We expanded to Baltimore in 2019. I know, uh, Bill, you talked about like the podcast being more Central Maryland, and people may not be as familiar with Baltimore city or the DC, uh, what we see in those two areas. But I will tell you, there's a lot of individuals who need support that are often hidden in plain sight. I, you know, when I was um, running for office, like you said, as a council candidate and the pandemic had just started shut things down. I was having a hard time keeping some staff because the work we do is in person. It's not something that can be done from behind a desk. Uh, and even myself, as like you mentioned, the executive, the founder, and president of the organization, I am. I make resp- uh, calls that are to respond to certain needs that are more, especially those that are more high level. But during the pandemic, I was doing street outreach, and someone said to me, someone in uh, Maryland politics said to me, "You're not being safe." And they were, try, they were kind of criticizing me because I was out doing street outreach during a pandemic. And in that same conversation, they segued to think about how many people walked by you and didn't say anything when you were out there. And what that means is that, you know, when I was 20, I was selling my body, smoking a crack pipe pike and pipe and drinking alcoholically at some bars in Washington, D.C., and how many people walk by me not thinking I would be where I am today. And so that went full circle to be able to say, and that's why street outreach doesn't stop in a pandemic. We walk by women. We walk, we walk by people who need help every day, but for us at Her Resiliency Center supporting women, we walk by them and we think, yep, yeah, they're okay, or not my problem, or they've chosen this life when there's really, you know, if someone isn't informed of what their options are and what how to access them, their options don't exist. And so, so that is a lot of what we do is helping them understand their options.
1: So for people who don't know about a Her Resiliency Center, what are their typical options?
0: Without access? You know, uh, I recently wrote an op-ed on regarding violent Johns and sex traffickers. And in this conversation around the decriminalization or the legalization around sex work, and I'm gonna tell you right now, um, I'm not someone who is a proponent of criminalizing women. I spend way too much time in a courtroom trying to support her not to have previous charges, to want that for her life. Um, That said, it's, so I wrote this op-ed, and I used, you know, examples of women getting locked in basements by Johns, women who are see, uh, on the streets and especially in Baltimore seeing other women murdered, other sex workers murdered. And those aren't victimless crimes. And in that conversation in, in the with this op ed, someone responded. Three other lawyers responded and they said, like, oh, um sex try, you know, people who are arrested for sex uh, for, uh, sex work who are really being sex trafficked often don't disclose the first time that they were being sex trafficked. Well, no shit. Sorry. They don't that's oftentimes, <laughs> oftentimes those we serve don't, who are sex trafficked don't know they're being <clears throat> sex trafficked. They're, the legal definition is force, fraud or coercion. And that coercion, especially when your boyfriend mm-hmm. is trafficking you, that's, you don't know, like, why would, he loves me. He went, of course he's, here for me, but we had on the flip side, someone who loves you, doesn't ask you to go sell your body to other men. And that is, so that is like something without a her Resiliency center, stepping in, asking those kinds of questions like, Hey, I have to ask so many questions. Do you get to keep your money? Do you have to share your money? Where does your money go? Do you have enough to eat? Can you leave? Like there are like the layering of questions is pretty deep before we can even get to a place where I can see a light in her eyes. And then there's the mental trauma bonding, which is more dangerous than any of the physical change you could put on her. And there's also just if she is a sex worker with consent, consent, it's like, does she actually, does she want a different choice? Because again, if we don't know our choices can't really access them and then her we will if if there's substance use involved that first taking advantage of another choice often starts with substance use recovery um steve
2: yeah if i could just jump in on that uh just as we're on the subject of trafficking and you you talked about you know central maryland with respect to dc and baltimore but but one thing we do see in central maryland is you know we we over the years, you know, had become a hub for trafficking, for sex trafficking, because of the fact that, say, Howard County, where Bill and I are, I-95 runs through Howard County. Um, Route 1 runs through Howard County. These are main arteries where trafficking happens. And in our county, you know, to their credit, our, you know, local police department has done a really good job of doing various sting operations. You know, their approach is to try to go after the Johns. Uh, those who are procuring uh, sex and hoping that you know, basically eliminating demand will you know do something about supply because you're afraid to make that call if you're a potential John. So I guess my bigger question is, is that the right approach to combat this issue? And, and one thing I will also say, uh, when there is a bust, that the county often you know the police will try to refer the worker over to a crisis center or another. You know, organization like yourselves to to try to provide that support to uh, women who clearly are victims of this trade. Uh, so my question, again, is, is, is that the right approach that is being taken in Howard County of having these sting operations to go after the demand as opposed to supply? And beyond that, what else could be done to combat this this problem?
0: I'm sorry, make it um, so there will be some mm-hmm. advocates in the, in the arena that will say like, buy uh, decreasing demand will cause more violence in these other places um, and you can't you can't you're not we're not gonna be able to cut off all areas I think it was um, it, this the the industry of sex trafficking makes a lot like the 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 illegal side of it makes a lot of money and so does the social service side there's a lot of money so really cutting it off is it's a very luc- lucrative industry to be able to try to really stop it on both sides um I think, One of the things is really just having law enforcement that's trained and understanding. A lot of times we have Mm -hmm. these notions that law enforcement think they understand. But, you know, I'll give an example. I do best with examples. A couple of weeks ago, I was called to BPD where a woman called her resiliency center's um, phone line. And I took the call and I thought, you know what, I can do this. She identified as having um, been... uh, sexually assaulted. And I responded and I'm thinking, well, we don't do sexual assault response. I can make, call some of our preferred partnerships and I can make a warm referral. And I get to BPD and I ask like the detective, hey, can you tell me what's happening? I didn't ask any questions. And the detective said, apparently she's been human trafficked. And that apparently was pretty dismissive in nature. And I asked the detective, can we contact the sex trafficking unit? And she just stared at me. And I started naming names of those who were in the unit previously that weren't there now. I was like, can you call them and ask them who replaced them? Just stone cold faces. And I go in and I talk to the young woman and she was gang trafficked for eight years, eight years. And I'm, and gang trafficking is some of the most violent sex trafficking that, that exists. And, and she is, I call it our care because it's not really services because she needs a high level of intensive services but you know those detectives weren't prepared to engage with her. She had been sexually assaulted right before that by the trafficker's brother and that didn't make sense to the police. Was well, trafficker's use tracking devices. They put them in the phones, they put them on their backpacks, they put them in their bodies. Think about your cat, if your cat runs away or Bill of Abby was to run away, Like you'd be able to find her. And that's what sex traffickers do because those that they are trafficking are their cattle and they want to find them. And so we really so we need to have more individuals who actually uh, in this arena who understand the difference between sex trafficking and sex work to really make an impact. But also have less of a vested interest in is it sex trafficking or sex work, but what is best for her.
1: So I'm wondering, and, and Steve put his finger right on the uh, on the nail of of where I was of of my other questions. We we like to think that these problems are are city problems, right? They're Baltimore, DC problems, but with the availability of transportation, of highways, of hotels, uh, where this sort of activity can go on, it's a regional problem, it's it's not confined to a city. And and so how do you wind up making that connection that the, the conditions that people are suffering from are different? Um, Because starting with O'Malley's administration in in Maryland, you started to see everything that we are talking about addiction, uh, mental health, you know, sex trafficking uh, thrown under the umbrella of behavioral health, which is a wonderful term, but it is not a one size fits all term. I mean, that is just like to say, to me, that is like to say cancer is all kinds of cancer. But, you know, and, you know, I hope this doesn't trigger anybody out there who is a cancer patient or a survivor, but lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, skin cancers are all various types of cancer. So we just don't have a one-size-fits-all approach to treating cancer, we should, my opinion is that we should not have a one one size fits all approach to treating behavioral health. But yet that seems to be where we are headed. So how I mean I I, I hope that you agree with the premise I just spelled out, but how if you do, how 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 do you combat that in in the community? You know, that that notion.
0: That's a good question. First, I'd like to go back to Steve's point about 95 corridor. I meant to say that in the last one, but I got going on my story, I apologize. But from the 95 corridor from Florida to New York and back down, and we're passing straight through it. And also any areas with an international airport, but saying that piece of the international airport, I really wanna emphasize it's in our own backyards. It's not, and it's often not someone who's being kidnapped and taken somewhere against her will, but versus the, the bonding that happens, the tr- it's called trauma bonding, where you build the relationship or the, the trafficker builds the relationship with her so she trusts him. And then, and then when he tells her no one will want her after what's happened and that she chose it, that's what keeps her in her chains. Um, to your question, Bill, about trauma is, uh traumas are different um and they they look different and before i jump to like this really what i want to talk about is the trifecta approach of addressing um some economics that would help with some other things i'll say that like the woman that we're supporting who was was gang trafficked for eight years she has pretty intensive mental health needs it's like the the so we're now working with the fbi to support her and And they says like domestic violence on steroids before breaking those chains and think about like how many times someone leaves, tries to get out of a domestic violence relationship. And this is not, and and so it's on steroids, but of course her mental health needs are going to look different Mm -hmm. being locked in a room. A lot of times for eight years with men just coming in and out, that's a different kind of response, um, segwaying from that. A hundred percent of the world has experienced trauma at this point. Think about from a globe, even just the global pandemic, um, war, when a, when a parent or an adult goes to war and they come back and they have a family and I, and this is not going to be at a hundred percent rate, but like there's the attachment and the ability to readjust back to your everyday life and then being able to connect to your kids and attachment also impacts trauma. And so, like, and, and if you in a city like Baltimore City, where either it's happening on your street or someone in your family's been killed or there's violence in your home, um, or that you're afraid to send your kids out to the playground because there are needles on the playground, that is trauma, firsthand trauma, secondary trauma. And we need to be, and so when I hear elected leaders talking about trauma as talking points, that has real life impact on people who are experiencing trauma. And here's the, here's the kicker is that especially for females, bipolar and borderline personality disorder mimic trauma. And, and so it's like we need to be asking questions about what's happening, not why they behave like they do to find out what the actual approach is to supporting them. I had uh, because I uh, my one ment- when my mentors had said to me Natasha because I'm so I'm so vocal around the sexual exploitation matter she said you really need to put something together more than just the argument of why it shouldn't be and and that requires more than a talking point but I called it the trifecta approach and it's. Economics, economic empowerment, which is actually not giving money to communities, but helping communities invest the money and in, having certain businesses invest, because by the way, the largest growing number of entrepreneurs in our country are women, specifically black and Hispanic women so let and and so a lot of the policies that we hear around sexual exploitation are angled at black women like oh let's just so they don't get criminalized no let's empower certain the community so that they have more economic opportunities so that she can go start the next some large corporation that employs more women and gives more um, jobs and careers so that they can have a wage that they can support themselves and a family should they choose the second part is trauma mitigation, and that's talking about trauma at every level. And the Not even talking about, but having uh, elementary school teachers trained in identifying be, certain behaviors that aren't behavior problems. Behavior problems, we all know that term, fight, flight, or freeze, right? Mm-hmm. That is where the behavior problems come out of. But we're not seeing it. We don't have those words. We, we, we're just like, oh, they they ran away, or whatever it is. Well, that's... That's the the flight. Let's figure out what's happening. Why, why is she running away? And also, uh, and then there are certain approaches to mitigating trauma for element, for school teachers that we could be implementing. And the, and the next part would be talking about sex, but that go, that's off the conversation of trauma more back onto the conversation of sexual exploitation. But the reason for talking about sex is if we don't wanna talk about the reproduction, reproductive system penis and the vagina and how you have babies why are we even going to talk about why what happens when we close that door and she's sold for sex
1: steve i know we're about two-thirds of the way through this podcast and i feel like i've been hogging so i'm going to shut
2: my mouth <laughs> steve
1: and, and ask, ask the nice ask the nice guest some
2: questions <laughs> well thank You're you bill uh, no i'm, Sorry. I'm just no, no, Bill, I've just enjoyed listening to, to the conversation. So, um, you know, Natasha, I'm going to I'm gonna tie your nonprofit world to your political world and talk about a couple of things that are going on in the world of politics that, that may or may not be affecting, you know, what you do at HER. And the first one, you, you know, you've talked a lot about addiction and, um, you know, recovery and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, I want to talk about the legislation that is out, you know, out there in Annapolis uh, to put on the ballot, a constitutional amendment that would basically legalize recreational use of marijuana. Uh, I believe it was delegate Clippinger that, that proposed that. And if it goes through um, it's going to be on the ballot in November uh, to legalize uh, cannabis for recreational use. we had a really good conversation with a candidate for office, uh, Richard, Richard Deshay Elliott, uh, who talked about some of the other things that could have been done that are missing. felt like it didn't need to go to a constitutional amendment initiative, but I guess my question is, uh, you know, because you deal with substance abuse and and maybe it's, you know, beyond cannabis, you know, how do you feel about that legislation, about decriminalization in general, and and how that would help and and support the work that you do? Steve,
0: I'm going to try to delicately walk through this one and it's not yeah it's it's not we at her work within power structures now I push against power structures and I go find new ones to work within to help create more avenues of opportunity for the women we serve. And just and someone trying to say this I am not a proponent for the for the legalization for recreational use. And I want to give you reason not because I want anybody arrested it's the brain is developing until you're 25. Mm-hmm. And so when you add a substance on top of it, not saying that it doesn't happen anyway, because that's usually the argument I get, it's happening anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm just making a factual mm-hmm. science, scientific fact. The brain is developing until you're 25. And if you add a substance like that, it, has, it impacts the brain's development. Second, and more to that economic part, unless it's decriminalized nationally, it disproportionately impacts those I serve, who are by and large the 99 percent of the women I serve are black or African American identifying. And the reason I say this, especially like we've seen this with those who are definitely in the eighteen to twenty five, and Baltimore sometimes we're outside that age range, it's because they can't get the first job when they have an entry and a lot of entry level jobs require drug tests. And if you can't get the, you can't pass a drug test because that entry level job is required and you don't get the, that skill to, to be able to have the first job in the formal economy that often keeps you out of the ability to make money and get a career. You know, when I worked, I went to, um, after I graduated college, served in Americorps, I went and worked on Capitol Hill for United States Senator, starting with Harry Reid and then uh, Ben Nelson, Nebraska and Brian Schatz of Hawaii. And the reason I point this out is I wasn't drug tested on the Hill. I was drug tested at Safeway, my first recovery job. And so how, like, I don't know if, and we, right when we do our employment workshops with her, I often talk about, man, I hated working at Safeway. But if I hadn't learned how to balance my till at night, I may not have been able to have that job managing multimillion dollar uh, budgets for United States senators. and And so that, so like so that first job often leads to the next one. And if you're not able to get it because you can't pass a drug test, we're keeping a lot of people out of the workforce. And so,
2: uh, hey, Bill, I think we have a little bit of a break here. Are you noticing that?
1: Uh, yes. Sorry? Natasha just froze.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Uh, hopefully, we can get her back here because uh, she was. I was really, uh, you know,
1: we this happened to us when we interviewed Bill Henry. I mean, oh, there you go. Uh, Natasha, Natasha you froze there? for about 15 20 seconds.
0: Are we back? Yes, okay. I heard you guys saying I was frozen. I apologize, but I was okay. No happy. worries.
2: No, no, please continue.
0: Where did you where did we? Um, I'm sure I was on a good monologue. That's why I'm asking. I'm just kidding. <laughs>
1: No, you just talked about working at Safeway and that if you hadn't have done that job, then you couldn't have been able to balance a a ledger for, you know, the budgets for the offices that you managed and so forth.
0: Oh, so so if I got that far, I was just trying to say that... I'm not sure like how we get to a national policy around it so that nationwide businesses, like chains like uh, grocery stores, aren't able to have the drug testing, but think about like from a from a liability standpoint. that so I don't good luck with that. I have, uh, but what I was trying to say is I don't know if through these state movements does the, do the current constituents take the hit, hoping that over the year, the you know, time to come, at a national level, you know, something will change. But then again, think about how many people we lose in the workforce while we're having that fight. Yeah,
2: no, no, thank you for that answer. And, and it, it is an interesting debate. Um, you know, you know, I, I have always been, just full disclosure, I've always been an advocate for use of cannabis for medicinal purposes. I, I thought that was a no-brainer, I still do. I, I myself have always been, A bit torn on recreational use. Um, I don't know that I have taken a full-blown side. I've kind of went back and forth because there is a lot to consider. It and the 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 private industry piece of it, the employment piece of it, is one. I don't know that a lot of people. I know I've not thought about it in those terms. That you could decriminalize it even in the state of Maryland, but you could have an employer that doesn't have to go along with that. It can still drug test, and that can still affect one's chances of getting a job. So. Uh, that's an angle that I I can say I've not thought about. So, so uh, I appreciate you bringing that perspective because it's one that more people need to consider as we go along this process uh, with what's going on in Annapolis.
0: Yes. Uh, I'll say that I have a lot of government funding at her, which requires drug testing. So I can't hire individuals who can't pass a drug test. Hmm. And, 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 and it's because those are stipulations on us, but also we use our we we often drive transport those we serve in our vehicles and so i also can't have someone get in a car accident and then you know and then not pass a drug test and then where's that liability fall if she's hurt uh or the the person the passenger i also say that my sister called me early 2021 or maybe 2020 i can't recall and she was really nervous to tell me um that oklahoma uh, legalized the growing of cannabis. She's Really nervous to tell me, knowing how much I, per- as a person, do not like uh, marijuana. And um, and you know, she told me, and I uh, listened. And when I when I was when she was done talking through it, I was like, listen, not everybody's an addict. I am. You know, not everybody is as involved in the lives of those disproportionate in life, the lives of individuals who are often marginalized. I am. And that's what I have to think about. But I'm also an I'm also very much a proponent of small business and women owned business. And I understand that, like, there are multiple sides to every argument. I just have to think about the side that of the, for the side of those I'm trying to support to finding their own economic power and therefore for their freedom.
2: No, thank you for that answer. I um, uh, want to ask another question. And it, it's. I apologize if it's a little bit out of the the, the age range, because I know your your area is primarily women 18 to 25. But because of your expertise in, in the area of dealing with survivors and victims, I, I just wanted to ask this question, to get your perspective on it. And it, again, kind of brings both of your worlds together. It also you know brings uh, bills and my worlds together, because it involves a delegate from our home district, District 13, one Vanessa Atterbury, who I think since day one has been pushing uh, you know to pass legislation that deals with child marriage um you know it's she has made that like a signature issue of hers um you know i i can't remember where it left off i know she had been pushing i don't think she ever got her legislation through but she's really worked hard on just changing that age of consent to where you didn't have you know young women as young as you know, 10 11 uh you know getting married and in situations where to be honest, they should not be in, and it really sets them up for, to become some of the women that you ultimately will deal with, so I just want to get your take on the whole issue of child marriage, and, and, you know, like I said, maybe some of the women who end up coming to her at age 18, maybe that was the start of what was a traumatic experience for them.
0: Oh, uh, Yes, uh, I'm sorry that one took me that that one kind of caught me off guard. I uh, I'll say that in I'm going to take this back to the sexual exploitation realm. You can't consent to sex until you're 18 years old. So therefore, any minors who are engaging in the selling of sex with or without a trafficker, by legal definition, is sex trafficking. And so to know that we're still talking about. Whether or not, you know, the news, I've seen it move away from this, but when I would see the the title on news, like child prostitute, nope, child prostitute does not exist. It is sex trafficking. And so to, I wrote it down, child marriage. Child marriage doesn't, like, I hope whatever she's pushing is to make sure that doesn't happen any further. It's just really like, you know, the longer, at her, we talk a lot about uh, sex in terms of prevention of STDs, STIs, and unplanned pregnancies. And the reason is, the as it relates to pregnancy, is the, law, the more time she has to get to achieve her goals, the more economic independence she has to having a life that she wants. And again, the brain is developing until you're 25 years old, so someone who's get, being married off at 10 i'm sorry i'm having a hard time with this one 10 year olds they play with toys why are we talking about marriage i think that's why i'm getting caught right. up. If,
1: if i if i can interject uh, and makes- in, in, in point of fact the age of consent by which a person can get married in maryland is currently 16 and what delegate atterbury has wanted to do is to move that up to 18. Right. that makes right. sense
2: yeah, I mean, Tim was an example. I mean, there were some archaic laws that may still be on the books in other states that that take it that low. But yes, Bill, you're right. She wanted to take it from, uh, you know, from your mid-teens out to your late teens at you know at, at age eighteen. So thank you, Bill, for the clarification on that. Yes,
0: and I, I believe it's probably in other other places in our country. I just wasn't. I was like, man, that was catching me. But regardless, like, think about like, you can't join the military until you're eighteen. You know, you can't. They're, you're not a legal adult until you're 18, why we're um, allowing for the under 18. But then again, it could be with, you know, in certain situations if she gets pregnant or whatever those factors are. But again, it goes back to why aren't we talking about some of these opportunities so that she can have a life she wants long-term, not to take her power away from her at 16. But when I tell the women at her, where they wanna talk about certain things on social media, what they want on the internet at 18 may not be what they want on the internet at 36. And so what's, what's at 16 married to a person who may be older may not be what they want. in even two years, I feel like I did not give that one. Like, like a, I'm just kind of blown away by the question. I'm sorry.
2: I, I know. And, and it, my apologies, but again, just because of your expertise, and and I just see, I, I could almost see the connection that, that if you've got young women who are getting married at, You know, Maryland is better than most, even even though I think 16 needs to be dealt with. But even that's better than some states out there. But, you know, I, I just wanted to ask it because I could see some of those young women in situations where when they get in that 18 to 25 age, you know, they're talking to somebody like yourself because they realize the situation that they've been, they've either gotten themselves into or in a lot of cases forced into uh, yeah. because of unplanned pregnancies etc so
0: that i think again if it's pregnancy related it's like talking about sex and prevention but it's also we i know someone who got pregnant at 16 and her the man she was with was 27 and she married him and it was some of the she it was a horrific uh marriage for her and and so if that answers your question, it's yep. it's why it, there's a significant power dynamic when she can't make other legal choices because she probably would need a legal guardian. And, and when you get married, it's my understanding because I haven't been married, um, that, that that next legal entity would be your spouse.
1: So, so Natasha, we have about five minutes left in the podcast and you know, it, it, it's clear from our conversation, which has been really useful and, and helpful. Uh, so, sometimes, you know, we, we in Howard County and, and elsewhere where, you know, we'd like to think of ourselves as having a certain level of privilege, uh, we get very happy with ourselves to do certain things for the underprivileged. Um, you know, creating uh, entrepreneurship groups for uh, girls and young women, you know, uh, girls who code, women who code, um, that sort of thing, STEM and STEAM uh, accessibility for girls and women and, and people of color. And all of those are, are very important, um, and, and I think we can all agree that they are. But I, I do believe that sometimes we have a little bit of a blind spot in that those, those items are a little bit higher up on that old hierarchy of needs. And that, you know, before you can even get there, there are people who just basically need the skills to survive. And, and that's where you fit in. Uh, and and where what you and your organization and what Her Resiliency Center does is is so incredibly useful and a benefit to uh, Maryland and to D.C. Uh, I know that the state legislature has about a month going uh, left in it, and I know that you're you're not a, a lobbyist per se, but are there any um, are there any legislative initiatives or anything going on, uh, either on the state or possibly on a local level that people who might be watching or listening uh, might want to take an interest to that that you're aware of?
0: Uh, I would uh, because the um, I was talking to some unelected leader and. Prince George's, not as a any kind of lobbying capacity, but versus an advocacy capacity, because we need, you know, in social services, we respond to what the government dictates as the needs. When you can have advocacy involved, you can help influence what we're actually seeing in social services, so that the funding can respond to the to the actual need. In this conversation, from a COVID standpoint, I we've expect, so a lot of the women we serve in DC have started to move into Prince George's County because they can't afford to live in DC. Um, we were there's, there are a number of um, women we serve who are behind on their rent. And one of them, I was blown away to find out twenty three thousand dollars behind on her rent, because the company, the more the um, the company of her building did not collect rent for those two years. With but I also know that those landlords could have filed for COVID relief for their tenants and didn't, and so now she is stressing about carrying that debt on her credit for the next several years, and so in talking to the the individual in prince george's it's like how could we have some of that relieved from this uh time of a pandemic now i'll say for at her resiliency center we're supporting that woman at, uh, on the individual level to getting mm-hmm. to different housing and and back into employment now that the world is reopening and she's also just a few credits shy of graduating with her college degree um and and but now she's going to have that debt hanging around her shoulders so and talking about that is like, could something have been done in Annapolis to support more of those examples? Um, and then at the local level, I, you know, I'm really we're just, especially here in Baltimore, is looking at the uh, sexual exploitation of women, choosing and like trying to really work to identify and help the general public to understand the difference between sex work and sex trafficking, and even elected leadership because oftentimes those who get elected to office getting elected office requires money and those, and and to be able to be around money, you often don't have to make survival decisions that stem and that could lead to places that, uh, the vulnerability of being sexually exploited in one capacity or another. And so helping them also understand the the key differences and what the next choice could be, should she want a different life.
1: I I think what I'm also hearing you say before we wrap up is, is, is that, you know, for those of us who might have an interest in, in these sorts of issues, as, as I do, uh, you know, is to not just, you know, look at buzzwords of what people are offering who are running for office, you know. Uh, in Howard County here, people like to say, we're going to end homelessness. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you know, uh, take on addiction and, and make everybody mentally healthy. And and you know these sorts of uh, absolutes, I know I find personally skeptical. Um, and 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 I, I think what I'm hearing you urging people to do is is to be critical of of folks claiming claiming to help the community.
0: All I know is that. There are no quick solutions to, law, to systemic issues. And anybody who's offering quick solutions, we should be running from because it's dangerous because it won't happen fast. And that we right. need leadership who's willing to sit in the uncomfortability of the vulnerability, knowing that it's gonna take time to create real change that's sustainable. And that the general public to, act, like you said, Bill, to do research, to find out is this probable? Is this possible? But mm-hmm. also encouraging our leaders to know that, that we understand it's going to take time.
2: Well, that would be my my question here, Natasha. Is you know we we seem to live my 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 late mother used to call it uh, the microwave world. It might even be quicker than that now with uh with social media, where you know so many people want things right away, and I I think there this is my own soapbox moment. There seems to be a lack of understanding or willingness you know you can debate which word is appropriate of people to accept the fact that things take time and when you look at things like sex trafficking when you look at things like addiction when you look at some of the things that you know the her resiliency center you know gets into dealing with some of these women um uh, you're right there are no quick answers but i think we we too often in a world where people want a quick answer and if you don't have that answer in six months it's well you have failed uh, I, you know I, how do you we're confront
0: gonna, We're going to f- offering quick solutions is going to lead to that failure because they're not p- possible to implement in six months. And so we're not even setting realistic expectations for, ourself, like the, for a leader, like a candidate who's proposing something quick. You're not even set, giving yourself a realistic opportunity to win and actually implement because things take time. And, right. you know, and I worked, like I said, in the United States Senate where everything, I mean, I've seen it. It takes time to actually implement. And by the way, anything that comes with money in any jurisdiction, money creates, money is wonderful. I'm not gonna lie, but it creates problems. And, and it's because you have to build that infrastructure. You have to know how to use it. You have to be able to get it the system set up and that alone can take months. And so I think just being aware that, we quick solutions don't exist and anybody offering them we should be afraid of
2: well i, I appreciate that and i could not agree more and and uh bill i'll let you wrap this thing up um you know because i i want to give natasha an opportunity to to any message she wants to get out to those listening watching you know so i'm gonna turn it over to you to, to let you well, that up. well oh i was gonna say i was gonna let you hit first sir
1: Um, Natasha, for anybody who wants to support the work of Her Resiliency Center, how can they do that?
0: In the jurisdiction, in the areas where we are located, um, find us at HerResiliencyCenter.org. You'll shoot us an email at at info at HerResiliency.org. In in areas where we may not be um, located, I would encourage you to find organizations that support some of these issues. Um, and and get involved you know I'd also encourage opportunities to build empathy in the community so that we can actually treat each other like human beings and not like criminals or like or less than but actually like people that we all deserve to be
1: well thank you Natasha you know um you know it is international uh women's month and uh you know, there are lots of women who are doing fantastic things in the community, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm not just saying this because I've known you for a little bit. I'm saying this because of the work that you do, but, but you truly are a treasure in, in this region. And, um, you know, the work you do is, is so important. And I'm very happy and proud to have supported that in the past and, and looking forward to continuing to do that and to continue to learn of of many great things to come. And it will not be two years before you're back on this (laughs) podcast again. If if you want to be
2: please.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Bill.
2: All right. Well and I'm sorry, but let me just add my thanks as well for the conversation, which was which was amazing. And also, you know, a lot of times you hear thank you for your service to our you know, military men and women, and rightfully so. Uh, You hear, thank you for for your service to our, you know, firefighters and police officers, EMTs, but uh, you know, there's a saying, some heroes don't wear capes. Well, some heroes don't wear uniforms and people like yourself who are on the ground, neighborhood by neighborhood, you know, you're in that camp as well. So thank you for your service.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Steve, I appreciate it. I think you guys both having me on. I really, it's really an opportunity that I, did not want to miss because part of my job is to help inform on what's happening and what we see on the ground so that we can help change it at all levels. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Natasha. Steve, as always, thank you. Uh, Next weekend, we are going to have an ish episode uh, based around the ever elongating Maryland election cycle. And also a look at our hometown district, uh, Steve and my beloved District 13, uh, because it just has to happen. And you know, at this rate, at this rate, Steve, the 2022 election is not going to finish until 2023. It's going to be just like the Olympics. We will, we but we will talk about that more next weekend. Until then, I hope you all have a terrific week. Remember to like and subscribe to us on YouTube because YouTube subscribers are the way to a better life. And for Steve Hunt, I'm Bill Woodcock, and you have been watching or listening to another edition of Forward Maryland. Take care, everybody.